Welcome to Leap Into Your Story podcast, where you discover your inner story, break down the process, and meet others who've done it so you can leap into your own story. We interview amazing guests who provide powerful insights that inspire you to get your story told. Be sure to visit our website at leapintoyourstory.com, and while you're there, subscribe and like us via your favorite social media network. Now sit back, get ready to take some notes, and let's get started. This episode of Leap Into Your Story podcast is brought to you by Leap Into Your Story course. Visit leapintoyourstory.com where you have a guide to get your story told. I'm Victoria Anderson. Welcome to Leap Into Your Story podcast, where you discover your inner story, work through the process, and meet others who've done it. We interview amazing guests who provide powerful insights that will inspire you to leap into your own story. So be sure to visit our website at leapintoyourstory.com. And while you're there, subscribe and like us via your favorite social media network. In this episode, going to learn about the art and craft of the narrative. And my guest today is David L. Robbins. He's a distinguished author, playwright, and university educator. Several of his novels are New York Times bestsellers with some option for film. His historical work on Aaron Burr, The King of Crimes, was broadcasted nationally on PBS. In addition to writing and teaching, he's founded several community organizations. River Writers, a nonprofit that helps aspiring writers, has co-founded the Podium Foundation, supporting writing for city youth. His The Mighty Pen Project gives Virginian veterans and their families training to turn their memoirs of military service into written archive narrative. Frontline Writers is his writing program for Richmond area first responders. And in 2018, David was named one of two most inspiring writers in Virginia for the past 50 years by the Virginia Commission for the Arts. So David, thank you for joining us today. It's quite the honor to have you. Now, before we dive into your questions and discussions, tell us a little bit about your writing journey, because according to your bio, you didn't start out as a writer writer in your early career path. Thank you, Victoria, and, and, and hello, everybody. Um, so listening to that <clears throat> bio introduction clearly sounds like a man with too much time on his hands. That's <laughs> <laughs> my thought. I'm listening to that going, oh, my goodness. <laughs> Any one of those would have taken, you know, been fine. Um, so, um, no, I, 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 um, I was one of those kids. I, I was born in the, in the 50s and, and um, in a place and time where um, it predated the sort of um, the, the selection and the tiering that they do in education now, like, oh, you're gifted, you're not. When I grew up, was you're a farmer, you're not. You know, you're, you're, um, we were all poor and we were all stuck together. And so we all learned together. So I, I'm not saying I was or was not gifted. I'm saying I grew up in a, um, in a setting where um, um, my dreams of being, let's say, an artist or a writer 
were kind of my own. There, there wasn't there wasn't a venue. There wasn't a, a creative writing teacher. There wasn't a there wasn't a literary journal. There were you know there was just the local library and whatever books I could get my parents to buy me. So I didn't grow up thinking, oh gosh, I want to be a writer. I, I didn't. I grew up thinking, oh, I want to be in the military because everybody I knew was, you know, you could walk down the street, the little town I was born in, Sandston, and um, I've written about this. You can walk down the street and, and our house was uh, Pearl Harbor in the Pacific and the next house was the Bulge and the next house was um, China and the next house was um, D-Day and, and across the street was the Bulge and down the road was the Italian campaign. And so I grew up in this ethic of service and hard work and, you know, household gardens, right? And, and um, so I, I, I wanted to do things that were sort of instead of this. So, of course, I wanted to serve in the military. But then I grew up to be six foot six and, and, and 12 pounds, and that was way too thin and way too big to, 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 to be in the military. And I, I wish I had, and I, I regret that choice of not doing it. So then I, I, um, I ended up being an attorney, and, and, and I, I've somewhat notoriously called law school the great catch basin of the unfocused overachiever. <laughs> so you know you're smart, and you know you, you like the notion of service. You know you like the notion of being uh, of use to mankind. Wasn't a business sort. Didn't grow up amongst business people. Uh, grew up, you know, the veteran thing that my father and mother and all of our neighbors, uh, that ethic. And then I grew up in a Jewish church. And there was a strong ethic of, of either business or service there. Um, and so I, I just kind of gravitated towards law school because, well, that's what you did. I couldn't stand the sight of blood. So I wasn't going to go to med school. Um, and, and at 6'6", I was not going to make myself a target in the military. Again, a choice that I wish I had not made. Um, uh, so I ended up going to law school. And I practiced law for one year. Loved law school. Hated being a lawyer. So I made it for one year. And I called my dad. And I said, look, um, I've been here for 50 weeks. I've got two weeks paid leave that I have not taken. Will you give me credit for two weeks? Because dad said, you put in one year or you owe me for law school. <laughs> so he gave me credit for two weeks and I got to come home. And then I decided, well, screw it. I'm just going to go be a psychologist. And Because I said, I've always gravitated towards people's stories. I'm one of those I'm one of those oddities, Victoria, where you think I talk a lot, but at the end of a conversation, I know everything about you. And, and people go, well, you talk full time. I go, actually, I didn't. But I, so, but I, so I love people's stories. And, and I, so I thought I'd be a psychologist. So I took the GREs, you know, getting ready to go to psych school and stuff. But in the meantime, I met some guys that ran an ad agency. So I started writing copy for them. You know, a couple bucks here, bucks there. And they found out I had a facility for it and a kind of commercial grade wit. So instead of going to graduate school to be a psychologist slash lawyer, I stuck with writing advertising copy. So I spent 14 years as a freelance writer writing everything, billboards, newspaper, TV ads, radio ads, uh, travel pieces, business to business, you name it. And I learned in that 14 years of writing marketing commercial stuff to really prize every word. Because if you're 13 words on a billboard, that's it. Nine words on a bus card because it goes and you can only read nine words. <clears throat> um, and so 13 words on, on a billboard because you're doing 60 miles an hour and it's gone. Uh, 23 seconds for a 30 second radio commercial because you got at least seven seconds for the brought to you by Toyota Center, 2705 Hillcrest, whatever. So 
I learned really to prize every word, but it, it never went away that I wanted to be a writer and a storyteller. It never went away. And it took me into my 40s before I just, here's, here's the real answer that this was the run up to. Uh, I, I was born to very kind and loving people in a very kind and loving environment. But I was nobody. I mean, honestly, uh, all of my attempts at law school and, and these things were attempts at significance, like a lot of our lives are, right? You know, how, do I, how do I matter? How do I, how do I rise above the psychological horizon of other people's view of me? I was a little yutz from the middle of nowhere. Um, I didn't know anybody. I, my dad's name wasn't on a sign. He worked at the airport in the tra air traffic control. And my mom ran a, ran a recreation center for the county. And ah, so I, true story, I, I saw this photograph of Isaac Asimov sitting on a chair made up of his books. He had published so many books in so many languages. He literally made an easy chair of it and he was sitting in it. And I thought of all the things that I would want. I want that. It, it, it stuck with me. It struck me. It was that, that, let's say, that thunderstruck moment where I paused and I just took on a life direction and like a real life direction. You know, not like I want to, but I'm going to. And then I started um, looking for the story I wanted to write. Um, my dad had passed away by this point. It was 1989. And... Um, I was reading about World War II because um, as we were talking before we started the podcast, I believe in a sort of cultural literacy. I think that somebody to be a good citizen has to be informed. And part of being informed is knowing our history. When I say our, I mean, of course, whatever group that you gravitate towards first, perhaps your history is that of being an American. Perhaps it's being a citizen of the planet. Perhaps it's being a, a Christian or a Catholic or, or a man or a woman, I pick. But I think you should know your history. So I was reading about World War II because my father and mother both served and all my uncles and as I said, all the people I grew up with. And I saw this small statement while I was reading about the Battle of Stalingrad that said, uh, but not all the troop movements um, at the Battle of Stalingrad were, were large units. Some were small and personal encounters like the duel between the top German and top Russian snipers. And I, if you, you, know, you read the cartoons and like a little light bulb will appear over Dagwood's head, I, I, I I, I, it came on. And just reading that paragraph, so that little paragraph led me to the next two years and spending three months in Russia combing through archives. Um, uh, I actually met Vasily Zaitsev and I wrote a book called War of the Rats, which mm -hmm. became the movie Enemy at the Gates, which turned into this career. Um, so it was, um, and along the way, a lot of hammering and nailing and, and sweating and, and, and doubt and um, but the thing that I never forgot was that if I failed, the world wasn't losing anything exceptional. Uh, honestly, and I'm not prescribing this for your audience. I'm not saying consider yourself to be worthless. But I kind of wasn't stupid, and I'm not stupid now. I knew I had certain capabilities that I were going unused. And I said, if I don't try them, if I don't use them and commit to them, um, then they will stay unused. So I literally did that. I looked at that picture of Isaac Asimov and I said, well, that right there is the kind of significance I want. Um, and I just felt like I was betting a penny. I mean, you know, my mom would miss me. My dad would go, where's David? You know, he's not at the table. And, um, you know, my friends would be like, oh, but 
to a large extent, if I just kind of blew up in the process and disappeared, the world would go on. Um, so I asked, and maybe your audience can ask themselves is this, why are you protecting yourself? Now, if you're Prince Harry, yeah, okay, look out. You got something going on, right? But for a lot of us, um, why was I being so careful with my life? Why was I being so protected? Why was I going to law school to try to earn a living doing something I didn't really believe in? And, and, and on and on. And I know this answer is going on and on. I'm sorry for that, but- oh, You're fine. Um, oh, but I, I uh, storyteller. Um, but I did, I literally thought, what does it matter? I'm being so careful with this life um, that if I, it's a penny, maybe a nickel on my best days, right? And I thought, why, why am I so careful with me? So I, um, I committed myself to wanting to be a writer. And I will conclude this part of my, my, my dialectic with um, the first published writer I ever met was me. The first writing class I ever sat in, I taught. The first New York agent I ever met was the one that took me on. Uh, the first editor I ever spoke with was my editor. I came completely out of left field. I had nothing. I'd never taken a writing class. Um, I just threw myself at it, and I read, and I read, and I wrote, and I wrote, and I, I uh, taught myself everything I could. Um, and then I just had good people who believed in what I was doing around me, and there we are. So um, I'm, I'm an example, I suppose, of... Um, of, 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 yeah, hard work, uh, but, but no small amount of good luck. Um, and um, I guess what I'm trying to say to your audience, and for the moment my audience, is there's none of you listening to this right now who, if I could do it, you can do it. I am not smarter than you. I am not nothinger than you. I simply committed to it. Uh, and it seems that the, the, the book gods do favor at least the bold. Yes. And that's the whole point of what my mission is, is to get people to write. Um, and to your point, uh, one of my other recent interviews with a, a playwright, he says that you don't realize that you're holding good information from the world <laughs> when you don't tell your story. Um, there are people hungry for it. And just do it and all the uh, mind talk about worrying about being perfection and who's going to like it. You don't worry about it. You just get your story told. Well, um, we have to be realistic too, Victoria. Not all people uh, are economically or, or let's say even socially capable. You know, right. there are um, one of the smartest people I'll ever know, um, a two-time um, uh, war deployment in Iraq. Uh, she was JAG Corps. She retired as a major. Um, and she's 44 years old, and her husband has just now graduated from med school. And mm. 44 years old and two young children, she is just now putting her toe into the water to write. Because up to this point, you know, earning a living and being somebody and raising two children and, 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 and trying to be a good mother and wife and partner and, 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 and intellect, it, it is um, – so a lot of this is not just your story. It's also preparing your day, preparing your life, preparing your bank account to give you the luxury to write. Um, I don't know that this can be done effectively in spare time. I don't I'll be proven wrong, I'm sure a thousand times over, but I know that you improve your chances. Well, you, for, well yeah, before you start writing, before you commit on that journey, um, commit to that journey. And if it takes saving your salary for a year or two or going part-time at work 
or waiting like my friend did till the right you know conditions arrive. Um, but I know that hobbyist riders um, are, are setting themselves up, I think, for more frustration than perhaps they would otherwise deserve if they were able to commit. And mm. I know that that sounds glib, and I'm not trying to be glib. I'm trying to be very deadly serious about this. Um, writing is not unlike every other craft. And nobody says part-time, and this is why I call my, my, my lectures the art and craft of the narrative. Well, the artist part, but here's the craft part. Part of the craft part is that um, nobody looks at a jazz musician and says, I'm going to do that in my spare time. Nobody goes to the Nutcracker and sees the ballet and goes, ah, I'm going to spend an hour a day learning to be a ballerina. Nobody, nobody does this. Nobody looks at, at, at um, uh, any other art form. Uh, nobody goes to a professional baseball game and goes, oh, I'm going to go to spring training this year and wow them. No. In every other art form, people commit, um, and they they and 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 the fruits of their commitment comes out of that. There are no savant ball players. You come up through high school and college and the and the minor leagues. There are, there are no savant jazz musicians. They all put in their ten thousand hours, right? But writers, we have this problem, and the world doesn't disabuse us of it. Maybe that's what I'm trying to do right now. Is that we conflate the ability to read with the ability to write, because I can decipher language when I read it, I think I can thereby create that language. And what my lectures are geared towards is, okay, well, what do you need to know to turn your facility with language into the written word? It's not the same. And so many people think they can be hobbyist writers, and there are some who are savants who pull it off, granted. But the law, by and large, you stand the same chance of being a hobbyist writer as you do of being a hobbyist ballet dancer or a hobbyist jazz pianist you must know so much theory and so much practice and it must become so innate and writing is not unlike any other art form it requires practice and repetition and mentors and on and so i try to break writing down into its constituent parts the same way a dance teacher would say this is position one this is position two i say all right well this is this is tactic one tactic two and that's I've heard about that. I'm very curious because um, I have, out of all the interviews and uh, instructors, I've never heard of breaking it down that way. So, <laughs> what? I'll be mean for a moment. Let me tell you why you've never heard it broken down that way. To a large extent, most writers and writing teachers don't know what yeah. they're doing. They seem to have, um, they get biofeedback from people. Go, oh, I liked that, and and. Uh, for instance, show, don't tell. You'll always hear show, don't tell, but you'll never hear anybody say why. I mean, it's it's sort of accepted as, as, as a pillar. No, you need to show that and not tell it, but why? Well, there's a thing called the lacuna. This is where we're lapsing into the, the reason why you brought me on today. That's <laughs> my, my personal story of worthlessness, but, but, but these things. So there's a thing called a lacuna. A lacuna is um, like a vacuum. It's, it's a gap. Right. And um, uh, nature abhors a vacuum. Right. That old saying. So what we need to do as writers is we need to actually create lacunas, vacuums, donut holes on the page, because a reader, a good reader reading a good piece will then like like air into a vacuum, rush in to fill the gap. So if we tell 
There's no gap. If I say Victoria was frightened when she opened the door to, and saw the, the vampire crawling up the wall, then the reader goes, okay, well, I'm just going to sit and watch this. I'm not going to, because clearly I've just been told to be frightened, right? But if I write Victoria eased open the door and the vampire crawled up the wall and across the ceiling coming at her like a serpent, my reader's going to go, holy smokes, that's scary, right? So that's a show instead of a tell. The reason why show is better than tell, well, not better than, it's the only thing you should do, is because it creates the opportunity for the reader to provide their own interpretation, their own uh, motivation, their own spin on what's on the page. And here's the beauty, Victoria. There are no wrong answers, right? There's no wrong answers. Um, I, if I may give you an anecdote, one of the, a play that I wrote um, called The End of War. While I was writing the play, I heard a cellist in my head. I just said, I hear cello music. So when we, when we produced the play, I had selected six or seven cello um, solos from, you know, Russians and Germans, because it was a World War II play. Um, and, and hovering above the stage was a cellist. And at strategic moments through the play, this cellist just played these cello solos. Now, I never, writing the play, and to this day, know who that cellist was. Yet every person in the hundreds who would speak to me about the play after the show or in the grocery store that they saw it, they said, oh, I know who the cellist was. I go, who? Go, well, that was the spirit of war, or that was Diana, or that was grief, or that was, you know, or that was the, the soul of, of, or that was Mars and playing it was warfare. And I go, cool. All those answers were right because I'd created that lacuna. Uh, I had created that gap that I left my audience to interpret. And so this is one of the 512 different things a reader needs to know is when you write, the reason why you don't tell is because you put up walls around the, around the reader and say, well, here are the limits of, of, of your interpretation on this scene. Where some people might be thrilled to see a vampire, like criminy. Right? <laughs> some people might be scared, you know, crapless like me. It depends. It depends on you. There are no wrong answers. The only, the only wrong answer is to tell your reader to not provide that. So throughout all my work and all my teaching, I, I, I pound this. I say, don't tell your reader what to think. Never sum up. Never interpret. Because if you if you do your job and you select actions that are dynamic and telling, your reader will provide that. Which is why, uh, Victoria, in the times when I edit, if somebody hands me a scene in a car or on a phone or at a breakfast table, I go nuts. I go, how is this setting going to reveal something about the character? If it's at the breakfast table, somebody better poison somebody. <laughs> you know, somebody better stick a fork in, 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 the, in, in someone's shoulder. You know, if it's in a car, there better be a reason. If it's on the phone, there better be a reason why they're not each other's company. Because the telephone and the car and a breakfast table don't reveal anything. They are, they inevitably lead you to scenes where the characters talk. And dialogue is dangerous because writers tend to, there's a rule, and I have more than one rule, but there's a rule that, that characters speak to tell you what they want. They act to tell you who they are. So an example of that would be a little girl who says to her father, daddy, I want a pony. What do I have? Well, girl who wants a pony. She steals a pony, what do I have? A thief. See, and so which would you rather read about? A little girl who wants a pony 
or Logan who's a thief. Yeah. Clearly the latter. Yes. And so you, our goal and what I push my, my students and, and myself to do is select actions and settings that are sufficiently dynamic to where my characters almost don't have to speak. Right. I mean, yeah, dialogue is a cool tool and it's, it's the second most important thing um, behind action. Um, mm -hmm. But if you pick good set settings, um, another way I like to put one of the great things, Victoria, about being a long time teacher and having taught, as you said, those several nonprofits I've, I've been honored to, to be part of starting uh, everything from middle school to high school to college to adults to veterans to, you know, I mean, I've, there's a panoply of types of students. And over this many these many iterations of student, I've developed a pretty good toolbox of how to explain things. So here's the one I use for kids. I say, if you want to know what a monkey's going to do, don't give him a calculator because the monkey's going to eat it, throw it, or forget it. Give a monkey a tree, right? Because a monkey, you're going to, if you give a monkey a calculator, you're going to go and you're going to throw it, and that's not going to tell you anything about the monkey other than he does, does not dig a calculator. Give him a tree and just sit back and watch the fun. You match the setting to the character. So if you give a character a kitchen table, you're going to go, why on earth would you take a detective, uh, a PTSD veteran, a vampire, a scientist, and a monster, and give them a car ride? Why would you put them at a supper table? Why would you, no, give them, give, them, give a monkey a treat. Give a monster something monstrous. You know, give a scientist some some esoteric challenge. And we don't often work setting um, to that end. We just go, oh, I'll have my character say it. I'll put them in a car, and my character will say, I hate you. I never want to see you again. Yeah, well, I hate you more and first, as opposed to just. And, and then the readers go, okay, well, I'm just going to listen. And we have to be always careful not to put our readers in passive positions. Because, Victoria, if I make you passive by telling instead of showing, by having dialogue that's not dynamic or in a dynamic setting, um, and, and a hundred other ways, if I teach my reader to be passive, then my reader will start to skim, see? And my reader will, will go, well, right, I'm, I'm clearly been put in the position of watching and hearing. But what I want to do is run and duck and bleed and emote and, and weep and laugh and and choke somebody and you know throw things off of a balcony and and leap and spread my wings and fly i want to do um one of my students once said very wisely we are not human beings we we are human doings and, and, and i love that as a, as a shorthand right we are human doings not human beings right um and so the, what i do is when i teach i i, I my lectures are all and i hopefully in my own work are, are all, um, they all evidence these kind of rules about creating that lacuna, creating that donut hole. I try to describe the donut by describing what's not there. And I invite my reader to view the actions that I put on the page and say, well, I know why she did that. You could be right to be wrong. For me, it doesn't matter. There's no wrong answer. As long as I have my, my reader providing part of the show, you're on the page and I win. And that, that is the, that is 100% of mastery on the page. Mastery on the page is measured um, 
the same we're watching the Olympics now, same way a, a, an Olympic event is judged very, very point by point, stuck that landing, hit that field goal, you know, slam that fastest lap. The metric of a successful writing scene, book, chapter, page, is this, is how effective were you in having your reader take part? That's it. And then everything revolves around how to do that. Because if you train your reader to sit back because too much dialogue, well, I'm just listening here, or too much uh, telling, um, in, in, in 1723, Victoria Anderson's family came from Norway. The, the father was uh, bought a tract of land and became a timber baron two generations later. And I'm sitting there just going, you know, because you're teaching the reader with these info dumps and all of his background to be passive and just take information in. But if you, um, if you have Captain Anderson um, running through the, the, the blue jungle because she's landed on the blue planet to stop the blue queen from, you know, taking over the planet Earth, and you're fighting and you're, you get your ray gun and, and things are incinerating all around you, the last thing you want to do as a writer is say that Captain Anderson is frightened or Captain Anderson is brave or Captain Anderson is duty bound. The last thing you would do that, right? Why tell the reader? Why say, hey, <clears throat> reader, <clears throat> you're too stupid to know what's going on here. So Captain Anderson is scared right now. And the reader's going to go, okay, fine. There's no work for me here. So I'm just going to sit back. And once I sit back, we're done. Exactly. But if you go, oh, Captain Anderson, I bet she has a, I bet she's really in love with the yellow queen and she's trying to, you know, I mean, you start, okay, that was odd, random, but <laughs> the, uh, the point I'm trying to make is you, you try to create settings that reveal character, that trip the character up, that open the character up. Um, I don't know how many times I have to listen to a song lyric about some man falling in love with a woman because she's beautiful. Freaking hate that. It's just so disrespectful to the whole, the whole catalog of things that can go right and wrong in love. But, you know, like one Tom Petty song after another, you know, just there she is. And my heart went out of the Beatles. My heart went out. I saw her standing there like, okay, walk out your door. There's 75 women there, you know? And, and so what you do is when you listen to these, these very shallow portrayals, you end up becoming passive and you end up looking at a man or a woman. And you think, Oh, I love them by what they look like. And we all know that's not the story, right? We all know that's not the story. And so we can't do that on the page. We have to explore the experience. And too many writers just give us the experience. I did this, I did this, I did this. But what did it mean? Um, I'm lapsing into memoir now because I teach a lot of veterans. And veterans by inclination and in nature will give you a sit rep. On this day, this thing happened. And Bob got hit. And I did this, and I did that. And they will have a wall sometimes from their own involvement. Right. Um, and so in memoir work, too many of you out there watching this podcast who are doing memoirs or writing your own stories are thinking that what you did was interesting. And it's not. I don't care if you flew with Jeff Bezos to outer space. It's not. Because that makes you a human uh, doing. And what we are is we're human beings. Who, who are you? So we always want to write what something means to us in memoir. And it's funny because in fiction is the opposite. Fiction is don't tell the reader what it means. Let the reader supply it. But in memoir, if you just tell what you did, 
then you're, 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 you're leaning too much on the experience, not enough on the exploration. And fiction is the opposite. And Victoria, I will inhale after I say one last thing, and then I'll let you ask me another question. And perhaps in our time together, you'll have gotten in two questions. So, sorry. <laughs> no, <laughs> um, no, that's that's fine. <laughs> we we so here's, um, I break stories down, and I'm talking about fiction now, or maybe nonfiction works as well. But I break it down into two things, and that is um, story and plot. Now, plot is what happened. Plot is me and me and um, 10 other guys, Ocean's Eleven, we went and held up a, a, a casino in Vegas. That's the plot. That's what happened. Story, call it theme, call it impact, call it significance. But I say story, story is what it meant. How, what was human about it, right? Um, and here's, here's the thing I love to teach is that plot makes us different. I will never be George Clooney. I will never rob a, I will never rob a casino with 10 of my best clever friends. Um, that plot makes us different. Story makes us the same. And that's why story is so important. Now, plot is important. I'm not denigrating plot, but we can over-rely on it. Now, repeat that. Plot is that thing that says to the reader, hey, this is exotic. This is new. This is uh, perhaps thrilling. This is certainly engaging and intellectually challenging. This is imaginative. Cool. We're all going to go rob a Vegas casino. You're going to learn how casinos work and security systems and all great plot. Every word of that distances me from the book. Even while it draws me in with interest from the characters, I go, I am really different from this person, right? From all these people. So the best you can do is interest me. The best you can do is amuse and entertain me. You draw me in when you start building bridges. And that bridge, what you and I have in common, Victoria, though we may be very different, we are 95 to 99% the same. Both had parents. We both lost. We both gained. We both kicked the ground in disgust at our own behavior. We both said, I love you. We both heard those words. We've had them, we've had them denied and taken back. We've, we've said them again. You know, we've, we've cut ourselves and our blood's red. The whole panoply of the human experience. All of that binds us. And it will bind us to a book. It will bind us to a story. If we emphasize the experience, well, then we end up telling our reader, well, you're, you're, you're watching the roller coaster, right? Because, because I can watch a roller coaster and go, ooh, that looks fun. Yeah? But I have to be on the roller coaster before it is fun. And that roller coaster is you and me and the bridge between us. So when we write fiction, nonfiction, doesn't matter. Any story, every story has to reach off the page into the commonalities the writer and the story share with the reader and the audience. And that is always and only humanity. It's always and only humanity. Unless you're writing my story, which no one ever can or could, then whatever you write is going to be different from my life. And that difference can be intoxicating and exotic to the writer to write like, oh, and then I did this, or then my character did that. And we can be led astray by action and, and bloodletting and screaming and horror and all that. And that can be really drawing. And what happens is the reading experience of a story like that is one of being an observer. But then when you read real horror, real love, real loss, real faith, right, then I go, oh, all of that's me. 
This was the genius of Hemingway. Hemingway could write three words and two of them were about me. You know, an amazing and the best writers. And here's a tip for you. So all you guys out there listening, watch what happens if you in your reading group or when you talk with an editor, when people read your work, watch how they respond. If they say, I love the part where the bank guard got up the floor and ran after the criminals, that was really cool. Or do they say, oh, I was so touched um, at his courage. I was so moved at his commitment. I was so frightened for him. One or the other, watch how they respond. Hmm. Um, I do this all the time with my veterans. I interpret because, you know, one guy or one, one woman will, will, will go to their story and then the other people in the class will respond and I interpret those responses. I said, now, do you hear what you're hearing? You're hearing everybody talking about your faith. Like, I have a chaplain. And when she writes, she writes about, you know, these terrible things she's done and seen and been part of. But everybody goes, oh, the faith that you bring and the, and the kindness you bring. No one says, oh, that part where the guy got wounded right in front of you. They don't say that. They say, how wonderful of you to be right there when that person needed you most. And they, and when her work isn't successful, they say, yeah, I really liked the part when you, when you jumped overboard, right? Then I go, okay, what you're hearing is you're hearing they were into your plot more than your story, right? So you can gauge how well you're describing, um, and emotion is only one of the facets. I don't mean to say bleed on the page and, and cry and weep openly. That's telling, not showing. I'm saying just share openly your vulnerabilities or your character's created vulnerabilities and your reader will latch there. I can't latch onto a, a 50 mile an hour car chase with machine guns downtown Chicago. I can watch that. But you want to put me in that car running around, you know, running around Chicago, having bullets fly all around me? Then you've got to explore... Um, the reasons, the greed, the anger, the, the betrayal, the loyalty, the child at home that needs Medicare, I mean, a medicine that you got to go rob a bank to get whatever. Then I'm going to go, okay, I feel that. We always want to emphasize humanity because that is the part, that's the bridge between the reader and the, and, and the book. Or if not a bridge, Victoria, then a mirror. If I look at plot, I do not see myself. If I look at character, I see myself. Those are, those are some great tips. So I think we've explored uh, question number one pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> Describe several characteristics of a well told story. So, and that's Look, we, we, story we number one, right? But uh, some of the other things, I mean, you talked about the role of action, you know, not necessarily overdoing the dialogue, putting the characters in just a really good setting. Um, so you can minimize some of the other minutiae in there that may take away from your story and what you're saying and what your characters are about. So, And, and let me, if I might, and I'll try to be a little more truncated. I want to opine just a bit on the role of setting. Okay. So I, setting and POV kind of conflate here. Um, by POV, of course, I mean point of view, the, 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 the vehicle on the page through which the story is told. You one POV per scene. You can't switch POVs because it's quite an accomplishment to get a reader behind the eyes of a character 
don't waste that. Don't switch to another character across the room willy-nilly because we just got to disengage and go get over there. One POV per seat. All right, now, here's my, one of my rules. There's two things in every scene. There's your POV and there's everything else. <clears throat> and and, and I, I don't mean to be glib about that. I mean, literally, there's your POV and then there is nothing but the POV's view of everything else. Nothing exists. And I cannot say this strongly enough. Nothing exists but your character's view of what exists. Right? That means down to the number. If you have a character who's a, um, who's a wood chopper and you decide to use a metaphor, it better be a wood chopper's metaphor. Right? Don't suddenly quote a Bob Dylan song. You know, because it's like 1720 or whatever. So it has. So, um, and, and, and here, here's a, um, I like to tell this, this again, when I'm talking to uh, people who I'm trying to give them quick stories. I, I invent this tale of these two princes. Um, um, Princess Victoria, Prince David. Let's do that. Okay. And we're, we're twins. And, and dad, the king has died. And so I say to you, sister, I've always wanted to go fight. The, the, the Turk in the Holy Land. And so uh, I'm, I, I'm going to leave you here, if you don't mind, to handle the, the estate as princess. And I'm going to take a retinue and I'm going to go off to uh, the Ottoman Empire and I'm going to try to defend, um, defend Jerusalem and the holy sites. And you can fine. So you help me prepare a, 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 a large convoy of armorers and leather workers and, and horse people and whatever. So 60, 100 of us head off we go across any number of mountain ranges and, to get, and so I get to modern day Turkey and I fight and I'm part of the Crusades. And I slash my way for 20 years through um, what I consider to be the enemies of my faith. You, however, are stuck at home and you're having archery tournaments and banquets and you're handling all the, the, the court intrigue of the kingdom, blah, blah, blah. 20 years pass and I figured, okay, I sheathe my sword, I wipe off the rust and the blood, I take off my, my cloven crusted helmet, my split shield. I grabbed the remnants of my retinue said, dudes, we're out of here, right? So we go creaking back across the Carpathians and the Alps, whatever the hell it took us to get there. And, and we've been gone for 20 years. I get within one, I don't even know, hectare, Dunham, whatever they had in this day and age from the castle. And I get off my horse and I say to one of my retinue, ride to Yon Castle, tell Princess Victoria that her twin brother David has returned from the Crusades. So gets on a horse, clop, clop, clop. They lower the, the moat. I mean, they lower the bridge. It goes, a portcullis goes up, goes inside, shouts and says, Princess Victoria, thy brother David has returned from the Crusades. Well, you jump on your white charger. You're running out across the bridge, uh, you know, <clears throat> up the hill. And <clears throat> there at the top of the hill with the castle in the distance, you find me. You drop off the horse. We drop to our knees. We embrace and we turn to look at the castle and we freeze, princess. Now, don't tell me we see the same castle because we do not. I've changed nothing. We are shoulder to shoulder. We are side by side. But look how our POVs inform what we see. You say to me, oh, David, my, my beloved brother, I'm so sorry. We had a fire in the armory last year and I haven't had a chance to repaint. And that tower is kind of soot covered. And I had an archery tournament two weeks ago. We haven't cleaned up. And I'm going to harvest the wheat. I mean, I swear to you, I am. It's a little overgrown. And I'm like, shut up, shut up. I'm home. I'm home. I killed innumerable people. And I watched innumerable amounts of death. I, I suffered through uncountable hardships to do two things. To do my duty 
as, as you know, uh, to my God and country, and to see that again. I'm home. I don't care. I don't care. But we see very different castles. So if I'm in Victoria's head, or I'm in David's head, remember, nothing exists. Nothing. There is no castle. And if you're one of my students, that would be a phrase I say over and over. I go, Victoria, there's no castle. There's only your view, your character's view of the castle. To one of them, it is home. To one of them, it is a, a, an administrative chore and a burden. But to one, it is like I have for 20 years used this as a bar to reach to, to pull myself through unnameable hardship just to get here. And one of them's like, ah, I got to get the lawn guy out. <laughs> you know? And so um, you see it's very different. And they're both valid views, but they're so colored and so multifaceted but so different by the character that sees it so i abjure all of your writers and, and and students and people watching this podcast to keep in mind that there's two things in every scene in every sentence and in every word there's the pov and there's everything else there is no tree and you know what else is part of setting victoria other characters A, another character has the same role as a car, as a table, as a chair, as a plane going overhead. That is to do what? That is to reveal the POV. Everybody, somebody else walks up and, and that person must be treated as part of the setting. Even though they're animated, even though they have language and their own motivations and stuff, they still have the same raison d'etre, the same reason for existing in the story is to help the reader understand the POV. That's it, it's the only reason they're there. Treat other characters like, like trees. Why did you pick a tree? Because I'm going to go, okay, why is there a tree? You go, because there was. No, why? In order to what? My character needs shade. My character needs, you know. Did we get to question number two? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we've covered uh, quite a bit of ground for the well-told story. So maybe let's talk about how talent and inspiration cannot come from the foreground for any writer until competence and understanding is achieved regarding uh, technique and editing skills. Great question. Um, and if you don't mind, I'm going to fall back on something I said earlier. Sure. You would never ask that question of a jazz pianist. Mm. It's so obvious. Right. You can't physically do the thing without the technique. You just can't sit at a keyboard and slap it like a, like a cat. You can't. This is the only art form where we ask that question. Nobody went up to Monet or Picasso and said, so uh, you can't really do that. with No, the technique is there. The technique is so obvious. When you see a dancer, when you see a basketball player the, or a baseball player at professional levels, when you listen to professional musicians, Writers are the only ones that get that question. And that's because we have an entire industry that preys, frankly, that preys on the aspirant writer. We've got self-publishing. So people go, okay, well, you're a writer and just put it out there. And we've got agents who don't really care. They'll say, hey, send me your first 50 pages. Everybody's, you know, they get all their, they get all hopped up. But nobody says to a jazz musician, play me the first, um, the first uh, 15 bars of Take the A-Train. If you can play the first 15 bars of Take the A-Train, you're a jazz musician. <laughs> the fact that you can do it, right? But in writing, we, we, we struggle to remember that this is a craft and it's an art form. And it, and it is subjected to the same number of techniques 
and the same pitfalls that every other art form is. And I strive in my entire um, life of these, all these nonprofits and things I've started and all my teaching revolves around this notion that make yourself a good writer before you expect the fruits of having been a good writer. Um, I had a student tell me last night, she's, she's 30 years old and she wrote a, um, a 82,000 word memoir about her 20s. And I went, okay, not like I haven't seen this before. Good kid, we get along well, she's out in Colorado. And I said, so what's your expectation? She says, well, uh, I want a major publishing, this quotes, I want a major publishing house to buy it and pay me to edit it. I went, okay, maybe, I don't know, no, would be where I'd start. Um, but the expectation is just no idea, no idea how far that effort is from, from an agent and an editor and a publishing house and a reader being interested in it. It has to be, you have to be so good to get a slot at a, at a, at a, at a publishing house. Now, here's the hopeful part, Victoria. Life is pyramidic. So when you hear people like me saying how much competition there is, understand there's never competition at the top. There is, if you are good, if you're up here, you don't worry about competition. So the only reason why you should ever worry about the number of people vying for the spot you're vying for is because you're vying for a spot at the bottom of the pyramid, right? So work hard, study hard, repetition, get mentors, um, throw things away when they don't work. For God's sake, don't rewrite a manuscript that everybody says isn't good. Toss it, put it in a drawer. Don't spend a year because some agent said, um, well, gosh, I, I'd love it if you put this in first person. <laughs> Just throw it away and start over. Don't spend that year writing, take a year writing something new. Um, so I, I, my answer about craft and technique and talent can't come to the fore. First of all, I, I want to be sure we understand that we are not different from, from, from everybody we used to see on, on um, the variety TV shows. We're not different from the people dancing in, in Riverdance and Rents. We're not different from a, a Broadway singer or an opera um, a, a, a composer. Nobody says to somebody who sings opera, so um, do you think you could sing opera without talent and preparation? It's, no, it's, it's there, it's on stage. They can't do it without it, right? Um, but we, as writers, we go so... Get in touch with your inner writer and just get it on the page. Would you say to somebody, just walk there in front of 300 people and just start singing? No. We, but we do that to ourselves. We, 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 we believe in this myth that inside each of us there's a story. And there is. But that's not it. That's like you go to a painter and he's got a palette, right? And there's paint on the palette, right? That's not a painting. That's paint. That's your story your life it's your story that is a painting that is the, that's the book but we seem to think that because we have paint and a brush we're writers no i'm like no you have to learn how to make that and we're the only art form that does that to ourselves we say well you should write your story and i say don't write your story write a book if your stories your life is not a story your life is not a story. Let me say that a third time. Your life is not a story. A story is a story. And it is as different from, 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 from your life as music is from a bird tweeting outside my window. That sound, that's music. 
And you must learn to work this brush and work this palette and work that canvas, right? And you, and you get teachers, people like me or people like you, and you listen to podcasts like this, and you take the art form seriously and you commit to it. And the good news is that if it takes and you have that ineffable thing that, that a storyteller must have there or not, if you have it, there aren't good unpublished books. <laughs> there aren't. If you write a good book, it'll get seen. There's so much demand for good work, so much demand. I mean, literally more than we've ever seen. And a good book gets, gets found. It just does. That's the good news, is if you work hard and you do let your talent shine and arise because you have a certain amount of mastery and experience and ease with it, you'll get seen. There's too much demand, you know? There's way too, there's, there are 500,000 agents and 400,000 editors who make money only when you do. Only when you do. They're looking for you. But the way to be found is not to just regurgitate it on a page. The way to be found is to study and practice and get good teachers and be patient and be committed. So should somebody who's serious about writing, they should take the necessary courses before they put any energy into it? Courses um, is one, one way. I mean, by my own testimony, I never took a course. Right. But I wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote. And I spent, I literally spent three months in, in Russia and Siberia researching. And I shut down so many other quadrants of my life to focus on this. Now, I'm not saying that level of manic response, but, <laughs> yeah. but courses is one thing. But the main thing is, I would say, Victoria, if I were to rank them, I'd say the first thing is write. It's, it's that classical butt in the chair, write. The second thing is, be ready to throw it all away. Um, I mean, remember, a dancer doesn't dance once and go, I'm gonna, that's forever. A dancer just goes, and that step's gone. And we have to do that, too, because we create a physical thing like a painter. Painters throw away canvases. Ah, it didn't work. Or they paint over it. Be ready to paint over your canvas. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. You'll know it. You'll know the sound of, 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 of the bat on the ball. You'll know it. People around you will know it. You'll know it. Um, I've seen way too many writers cling to their work because of the amount of time and effort they put into it. No one prizes that but you. A reader won't. An agent won't. An editor won't. A bookseller won't. So um, I would say the most important thing to do, uh, two things, is, is write and practice and practice and practice, just like any other art form, practice. And remember the difference between practice and performance. A performance is when you go, hey, Victoria, I'm done here. And practice is, all right, next. Throw it away. Write a short story. And when you're getting no's from agents and no's from short story collections, things you're getting those. Ah, I will quote an old basketball coach of mine. When I came back to the huddle, I said, coach, I'm open. He says, I know there's a reason. <laughs> yes, that that's true. So, uh, and I think, uh, I think we've all been there. <laughs> yeah. Yes. There's a reason why we're open. Right. Yeah. But yes, that reminds me of a famous Picasso painting that uh, in the Pasadena Norton Simon Museum. And they x-rayed that. And there was something like 15 other images underneath 
this Picasso. So don't be afraid to revise, revise, revise. (laughs) And And if I could stay on the Picasso thing for a moment. So I live in Richmond, Virginia, and we have a wonderful modern art museum here, the Virginia Museum of um, Fine Art. And they had a big Picasso exhibit about three years ago. And at the end of the exhibit was a log, like about that big, that big around. And Picasso had hit it five times with a hatchet, once for an eye, once for an eye, once for a nose, and twice for a mouth, and signed it Picasso, and sold for like $6 million, <laughs> right? Now, most people just go, okay, that, my five-year-old can do that. Yeah, but can your five-year-old do that at the end of a career where the signature is Picasso? So that level of mastery is people began, and this is what I'm, this is what I'm, I'm extolling and exhorting. You achieve the level of mastery of Picasso. You can make that log after those 15 attempts at that canvas. Then you can write that log. Where you just go, it's a Picasso. Yeah. You know, it's a Bob Edwards. You know, it's a Joni Albrecht. It's a whatever it is, right? You know, I've earned to hit a log five times because I've painted that canvas 15 times. That's right. Which, and started a whole movement on uh, <laughs> that style. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because he'd mastered certain techniques. And, and, and the mastery became confidence. Absolutely, absolutely. So, well, let's talk a little bit about, uh, since your main focus is, is historical fiction, Let's talk about some of the challenges of writing historical fiction. Well, you know, it's like whack-a-mole. Something goes up, something comes down. So the challenges are also, in another arena, um, advantages. Um, so the most obvious one would be this, the research. Well, no, the first one is picking the right thing, because history is freaking big, right? History is <laughs> almost as big as the imagination. Almost anything you can imagine has been done you know, unless it's science fiction or the future. But to a large extent, history is massive. And so finding the stories that you think that that, that people, that you'd be interested in, first of all, an epoch and a place in a, uh, that you'd want to take part in. So here's the first thing, and perhaps the most challenging thing to historical fiction, is finding the story in that plot. Because see, history's all plot, right? Um, a battle in Russia, um, 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 an assassination attempt on a president, uh, name it, right? Um, an invasion, uh, a, um, a court intrigue in, in, in you know, amongst the doges in, in Florence and Venice. All that's plot. That's what happened. The real challenge with historical fiction is finding that other piece I talked about. Not plot, which makes us different, but find the humanity, the story. So that's the first and biggest challenge is not just saying, oh, I want to write about D-Day. That's, um, I forget who said this. Somebody said, I I made no dent as a writer when I wrote about men. I only began to matter when I wrote about a man. And, And that's what we have to do here is we have to find that person, that man, that woman, that child, in the the vastness of history. And you have to write about the human in the midst of humankind. So I'd say that's challenge number one. And then all the obvious ones about getting it right. You don't want to say milk costs $1.50 in 1948. No, milk was a nickel. 
So you don't want to make those mistakes. Um, and so, but the advantages of historical fiction are to a large extent, you don't have to worry so much about what, what comes next. You know, that's nice to have the plot there, the plot, not the story, but the plot. It's nice to have a set of breadcrumbs to follow. Um, but historical fiction in the end has to be about a character. It has to. And the biggest challenge is finding, finding that human story you want to tell in the middle of D-Day, in the middle of stepping onto the moon. What did that mean to Neil Armstrong? What did it mean? Not what did he do, but what did it mean? How did it change his life? And by changing his, you change mine on the page. I'd say, and everything else, Victoria is just downrange from that. If you can find a story where you, um, for instance, here's one. Um, Stalin, his eldest son, his name was Vladimir. And Vladimir was, because um, this is a story I'm considering writing. So if anybody gets to it first, you're welcome to it. But Vladimir was captured by the Germans in a battle, you know, on the Eastern Front. And he was put into a POW camp. And the Germans contacted Joseph Stalin and said, hey, we've got your eldest son. We'll give him back to you. And Stalin said, no. Stalin said, no, I won't take anything from the Nazis. No keep my son. When Vladimir heard this, he threw himself against the barbed wire in his camp and had the guards machine gun him to death. Now, that's what happened. That's the plot. None of us are going to throw ourselves against machine gun. None of us are Stalin's son. But the humanity there of a father who says, no, because, you know, because no. And the son who goes, okay, I get it. I'm a liability. I'm going to end that liability. You see the humanity that you want to explore. So what happened is fairly short. He's captured. He gets bad news. He kills himself. That's what happened. But oh my God, look at the mansion, the rooms to explore of the humanity of that. That's what I mean about the difficulty of, of historical fiction is not just what happened, but find and be ready to explore you have to be brave enough and Picasso confident enough to take a story like that and go, I'm going to describe madness and, and betrayal and grief and suicide. You got to be ready, right. To, to go into that lair and deal with those dragons. Um, that's what historical fiction calls on you to do. Cause they're always great events. They may be small quotidian people, but they're always great events. So you got to be able to handle the event, the greatness of it, and handle the smallness, parenthetically greatness of the human experience. Even though, even though this has scope and scale, the real grandeur is not the 200,000 troops that land on the beach at D-Day. The real grandeur is the guy that steps off that landing craft and steps into that water. There's the grandeur. This is scope and scale. This the human piece, the step into water, the bullets whizzing by, and then the next step, right? The first one's like, okay, the next one's like, geez, that next step, that's where grandeur is. And as an historical writer, you have to be ready to find and describe and deal and wrestle with that. Nice, very nice. So let's talk about what are... I think you may have already explored this, which we talked about the challenges, but the three key elements, and that's, uh, I think you just probably covered that, is the human story in the backdrop of historical eras. Mm -hmm. 
if that's correct. So uh, finding the human story would be one of them. Anything else? Um, well, I mean, then there's the logistics of simply pulling it off. Where do you find the information? So um, I have a book coming out. I don't know when this podcast will be viewed, but high future. Um, but I have a book coming out in the next couple of weeks called Isaac's Beacon. And I it, it takes place uh, between 1945 and 1948 in, in, in the nascent state of Israel, which to this point was still Palestine. And it's about the, uh, the, the Jewish revolt against the British occupying force. And then it's, then it's the civil war between the Arabs and the, and, the, and the Jews. And I have Jewish characters, Arab characters, British characters. And, and, but it's essentially a love story. So I, I have taken um, a tumultuous and turbulent time and place in the 20th century on the map, and I've reduced it down to three characters. Um, and the love and betrayal, and one of them is a, a Moshavnik uh, or a Kibbutznik young farmer. She's a woman um, who falls in love with an American reporter who's there reporting for the newspaper in New York, and they become intricately involved with a third guy who's a Holocaust survivor um, who becomes part of the Irgun, which are the dissidents that ended up, you know, kind of taking the fight to the British. And so on the one hand, I had to go and I'm, 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 you know, I'm looking at the locations and I'm in Israel and I'm taking notes and I'm meeting people, talking to people. But then you got you to have the time and the resources with historical fiction to read a lot. And here's a tip for you historical readers, or you historical writers. 100% um, of the time, your character will emerge out of the research. Just will. You will read something and some character will do something and you'll go, oh man, there's my guy, right? There's my guy. Or, oh, I gotta have her. And um, you can work backwards a lot from footnotes. Footnotes are the best. Sometimes the cool anecdotes are in the footnotes because the author of the history says, well, this was interesting, but only interesting. It wasn't historically significant. So I'll put it back here in the footnotes, you know, and say, little known, but George Bernard Shaw actually had six toes on his right foot. And you may go, oh my God, I've always wanted a six-toed character and explore, again, random and probably not to a, explanatory but but um trust footnotes read them when you can um but i'd say the real one of the real challenges of historical fiction is just knowing your way around the period um but boy when writers do it right it's magnificent they know the stitching in a danish royal dress from 1480 they know the quality of the water in in, in the mediterranean in in, in sparta it's, it's, it's amazing what you can find. Um, and I love it. I love the research. Uh, the old lawyer part of me just loves, I love the, the, the three to six months I spend before I start writing a historical novel. I just, I destroy books. I destroy them. I, I footnote them. I, I yellow um, highlight them. I put sticky notes. I write in the margin. I, I literally will draw a big star over a page, like with an ink pen, and I'll circle it, like, read this page. And then like four months later, I'm like, Dumbass. Now I'm having to read through this, all these marks, but I get so, oh, this is great, you know. Um, so I, I have, I have uh, you can probably see behind me all my bookshelves. They're all wrecked. My personal library is worthless. You could soak it and make boat anchors. It's just all marked up. <laughs> but you have, you have to have the kind of temperament to be an historical writer, to, to, to really love delving in. And now, but I'm also talking about plot. I see, I want to give honor to plot. I didn't mean to spend so much time railing about the human experience. Plot matters so much. 
it's why the reader will read the next page and they will love the book and participate because of character work. But they will follow a character through hell. You got to know how, you know. Um, so I'd say they're equally important. Um, historical writing is um, also, Victoria, not disposable. Um, I like to think I've put a couple books into the herb. I like to think that if you want to read about the Eastern Front, um, 50 years from now, someone will go, David Robbins wrote The End of War, War of the Rats, and Last Citadel, three books about the, 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 the um the Eastern Front. I like to think that if people 50 years from now, like, like Leon Uris's Exodus, or people still read it a lot, someone will say, you know what, 50 years ago, this guy wrote this book. And then I like to think that historical fiction is leaving a document, you know, um, more than just a disposable legal drama on the beach. Great, fine, uh, not for me. And I think a lot of historical writers feel the same way. I want to do something of significance. Well, you answered my question of, do you get your characters through your research? Because I was going to say, you probably, um, I wasn't sure if you had family members in that era that you work or just through the research. So it looks like that's how they develop. You have something yeah. that inspires you to turn that um, into a focal point um, with their certain something that's caught your eye, their courage, their sad, you know, sad story, their great, their victory story. Yeah. Uh, that. Um, right. You can look at the story of Ernie Zampini, who became the focus of um, un, 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 was it un, Unbound? Un, Hillenbrand wrote that. Um, anyway, he was just, he was a guy, uh, he was a POW, and she wrote this beautiful book and became a movie. Um, about this one guy's experience uh, in, in the Pacific and in a Japanese POW camp, and then how he became forgiving at the end of his life. Um, again, so what he did was fascinating, but what we all talk about was the courage and the perspicacity and the forgiveness. And people don't say, oh, I love the scene when he, we all go, oh, Ernie Zampini's story. Um, in the end, he ended up forgiving the Japanese guy who's such and such. And we talk about the forgiveness and the courage. That's my point is how, how plot and, and, and the human story need to, they need to twine around each other. One, one can't exist effectively without the other. Absolutely. Well, that pretty much concludes my questions, except for let's talk, let's go back to uh, having you tell us about your latest book. And I know you uh, went over what to expect in it, but uh, when and where can we find it? Um, August 10th is the release date. Obviously, um, you can find it on Amazon, um, Kindle, recorded book, and hardcover. Um, buy all three, frankly. I, I'm not, um, um, I have a website. It's just, you know, author David L. Robbins. So anybody listening to this, if you'd like to get a signed copy of the book, email me. I will answer every email I get. I've, I've, 25 year career as a writer and I've never not had an email I didn't answer. So um, just find my website, send me a contact. And if you want a signed book or just say hi and just say hi <laughs> and you like me, my website's not for people who don't like me. Um, um, but the book is, it's called Isaac's Beacon. Um, and that is the anglicized uh, a version of a small kibbutz um, on the edge of the Negev. 
um, where a lot of the action of the book takes place called Meswat Yitzchak. So Meswat Yitzchak in Hebrew translates to Isaac's beacon. Um, it was the site of uh, the, 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 the kibbutz block it was in with three other kibbutzim um, was the site of a massacre uh, mm. that was in retaliation for another massacre that the, that the Jewish forces did in an Arab village called Deir Yassin. And so the book kind of builds this climax of really cruel in, inhumanity that the, that the Jews and the Arabs visited on each other. Um, I make no judgment. Um, but in terms of talking about character, the last question, Victoria, in reading about this, this the second massacre where the Arabs um, forces killed a bunch of Jews in retaliation for the Jews having done something very similar to them. Um, there was a woman, so there was like, like 100, 150 people uh, were machine gunned by the Arabs, again, in retaliation. Um, there was this one woman who survived. Two, two soldiers survived and one woman. And she ran and jumped into a ditch. And she was taken by this, out of this ditch by two Arabs who found her, dragged her to a copse of trees, and with the intention, I suppose, to do uh, visit ill upon her, an Arab officer came forth with a Tommy gun, killed these two Arabs, and put her in a truck and sent her off to captivity in Jordan. I found that in a footnote. Mm. Of, of the hundred and some people who were killed, three survived, two soldiers, and this one woman. And I found that woman, and she became the centerpiece of the entire novel. And so the entire novel builds up. Her name is Rivka in the book. And I created her out of whole cloth. But her, she ends up there. Um, and in fact, I'm working on the sequel to that right now because we need to follow her more. Um, so that, that whole character leaped out of a footnote in the back of a researchy book I was reading. Um, but it's called Isaac's Beacon. Um, and um, you can find it in hopefully a lot of places. <laughs> and I'm, I'm very proud of it. It is, um, I, think, I think, Victoria, if you read the book, you may contact me and go, oh, my God, I see all these lacunas. Lacuna. All these lacunae. <laughs> it's a cool word, lacunae. Um, but all these places where I don't tell you what to think. Um, I'm exploring that through all, all my work, and I think very, very effectively and very well in this last book is I, I just don't rely so much on, on inner narr narrative, inner dialogues. I let my reader go, I know what she's thinking. I know why he did that. And I don't care if you agree with me. I care that you fill that vacuum. Um, and I think if you wanted to see, if your listeners want to see this technique in play, I would ask them to read Isaac's Beacon. And, and judge for yourself. Um, I think it's a very effective way to write, is, is, is create as much space for your reader to flow in as you can. Right. Well, that's amazing. Well, that wraps up our interview today. So I want to thank you for sharing your amazing insights. Uh, it's been most productive, a lot of new information that I have not heard before. So I appreciate you taking the time to share your wisdom and your experience and uh, writing tips for those who are interested in taking their writing career seriously. So, and also thank you for tuning into Leap Into Your Story podcast where you discover your inner story, work through the process and meet others who've done it. So you can be guided into your own journey to writing your story. 
So remember to visit our website at leapintoyourstory.com and enjoy even more great episodes like this one. So again, while you're there, subscribe and like us via your favorite social media. We look forward to seeing you next time here on the Leap Into Your Story podcast. Thank you for tuning into the Leap Into Your Story podcast, where you discover your inner story, break down the process, and meet others who've done it so you can leap into your own story. Remember to visit our website at leapintoyourstory.com and enjoy even more great episodes like this one. Again, while you're there, subscribe and like to us via your favorite social media network. We're looking forward to seeing you next time on the Leap Into Your Story podcast.